If you would like to uh, turn with me to our text uh, today, I'm going to be preaching from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Proverbs 21, 1, which says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Why ultimately do the circumstances in your life fall out the way that they do? Is there a grand purpose or design for all that happens in the world? Who governs the nations and individuals, stars and planets, every event in history and every being in this universe? Now, there may be many responses to these questions, but I have selected four which, if not specifically believed, are in various ways practiced at times, even by we who are professing Christians. The first response that we may hear coming from the world and which we at times ourselves may actually in our practice embrace, maybe we would never confess it, but we, by the way we live at times, seem to practice this, is that man is in control of his own destiny. Man rules life. But is it not rather obvious that this particular view of man is, in, is errant because the plans of man fail all of the time. How many of your own plans have not worked out as you had planned? If you controlled everything that happened in your life, certainly you would have worked them out the way that you wanted them to work out. Does man decide who will be his parents? Or what nationality he will be? From birth? Does man determine precisely how long he will live upon the earth? Can man control the events in nature, such as hurricanes and droughts and tornadoes, floods or earthquakes? Who is in control? Well, it's certainly not man who is in control. In Jeremiah chapter 17, Verses 5 and 7, we read, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. Man's not in control. A second response is fate or chance is in control. There is no rational or purposeful plan. Everything just happens. It just simply falls out the way that it does. Whatever will be, will be. But fatalists live each day 
upon the assumption that the sun will rise and set as it did just yesterday. They assume that the law of gravity will keep their feet on the earth, upon the ground, and that two plus two equals four, and that's true today, it was true yesterday, and it's going to be true tomorrow. Fate cannot be in control, for there is an established order that exists in laws which all men use every single day and which they expect will be in place tomorrow and accordingly make their human plans based upon those laws, those things that they have grown to expect. In the fatalist system, progress in knowledge even would be impossible for nothing would remain the same from day to day. It would be, dear ones, like trying to make sense out of what someone was saying if every five seconds they switched from one language to another. Nothing would make sense if we couldn't depend upon the knowledge we had gained yesterday to be knowledge we could build upon today. If every day we had to begin from scratch, well, that's the fatalist system. Everything is by chance. You cannot know for sure what is going to happen with regard to anything tomorrow. It is obvious, dear ones, that an impersonal chance or fate, therefore, is not in control. We read in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. There are things that we can count on because God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And he has decreed what shall occur in this world. A third possible response as to who is in control. Satan is in control. This is a fallen world and Satan is in control. The evil in the world, the catastrophes, the wars, the murder, and on and on and on, all point to the fact that Satan must control what happens in this world. Well, the Bible does speak of Satan as being an evil and powerful being. That is true. But he is yet a created being. All his power is delegated to him. He does not inherently, innately possess this power. He cannot act on his own. When he tempted Job, you recall, he had to obtain permission from God, just as he did when he tempted Peter to deny the Lord. If Satan is sovereign, why could he not keep Jesus in the grave? 
For the resurrection of Christ spelled the doom and the destruction of Satan. Who's in control? It's certainly not Satan. We see that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that Satan will be cast into that lake of fire and place of torment himself by the living God. Our fourth and final consideration, there may be others out there that people may pose, but narrowing it down to these four, the fourth and the true one is that the triune God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in control. He alone is sovereign. He is the Almighty God. The Lord God Almighty knows all things, created all things, planned and determined all things, and controls all things for His own good and holy pleasure. This is, dear ones, the explicit testimony of God Himself as revealed in the inspired scriptures of the Old and New Testament. For example, in Psalm 115, verse 3, we read these words. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Dear ones, it may be your profession today from your lips that the one true living God revealed in Scripture is absolutely sovereign over everything that exists. Sovereign over your life and every detail of it. But I ask you today, are you living as a practical humanist that man is in control or as a practical fatalist that no one's in control but mere chance, or as a practical Satanist, that Satan's in control. This Lord's Day, let us fall upon our faces before Almighty God and renew our faith in Him as absolutely sovereign over all of His creation. Let us repent, dear ones, of our sin where we have in word or deed professed or lived as though the Lord God was not absolutely sovereign over all the circumstances of our lives. Today we shall consider Proverbs 21.1 and shall answer the following two questions. Whose heart is in the hand of the Lord? And secondly, how far does God's control extend? First question whose heart is in the hand of the Lord. We read in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. The explicit answer to the question from Solomon is the king's heart. Solomon does not intend to deny that the hearts of all men, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, married or unmarried, are in the hand of the Lord. He mentions the king because if the king's heart, who particularly in that particular age, was the most mighty 
of men upon the face of the earth. The one least likely to be under the thumb of God because he had most power upon the earth. If even he is in the hand of the Lord, then by way of argument, if the greater than the lesser, anyone under the king, his or her heart must be in the hand of the Lord as well. It is perhaps more difficult for us fully to appreciate how the statement would likely have impacted those who heard it about 3,000 years ago because we live in a particular society where there isn't that kind of absolute control as was placed in the hands of many kings in the ancient world. We have more checks and balances in our governments uh, today uh, so that the executive branch does not exercise sole authority and power. There is the legislative branch and the judicial branch in our nation, in our country. So to hear that the heart of the king was in the Lord's hand was to demonstrate to the people at that time that God was the Almighty One who controls all things, who controls all people, who wields a supreme, a supreme and exalted power over the lives of all people upon the earth. Consider the testimony of one such king, Nebuchadnezzar. You'll remember in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, due to exalting himself that he had brought about the glory of his own kingdom, the Lord had previously prophesied to Daniel that uh, by way of this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that Nebuchadnezzar would in fact be humbled. And in chapter 4, he was humbled. He was sent out uh, to roam about for a period of time like one of the beasts of the field. His hair grew long. His nails grew long. He was like an animal. He, he had leave of his senses to such a degree that he just remained out in the fields like one of the animals out there. But the Lord in due time gave him back his mind and he was restored back to his throne. And this was his testimony, the testimony of the mightiest king living at that particular time. In history, and one of the the mightiest kings of all history, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter four, beginning with must be toward the end of the chapter here. Verse 35. Let's start with verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. And my understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Listen. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? This is the testimony of one who was so humbled by the Lord and actually demonstrates what we find in Proverbs 21.1, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. What are some necessary implications of God's sovereign rule over all things? Well, first of all, God is sovereign as evidenced by the fact that he created all things that exist. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see that God is the creator of all things. Nothing that exists, exists apart from the creation of those things by the Son of God. By the Son of God, according to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He created out of Nothing, everything that exists. He spoke it into existence. The more that we learn about the vastness of the universe, the complexity of the body that God has given to us, the abilities and unique functions of each creature in the world, The power in a single atom. The power that can be released in the one single atom which we cannot even see with our naked eye. We are brought face to face with the might and the power of Almighty God who created by His Word all that we see and all that we cannot see. Even angels whom we cannot see in the space of Six twenty-four hour days and all very good. Paul even teaches in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that the Son of God who created all things is the very one who holds all things together. And if he did not do that moment by moment, the atoms, the very parts of the universe would basically self-destruct. It is not mere impersonal laws that hold our universe together and keep it running in such an orderly manner. It is the very power of God that sustains order in this universe rather than chaos in this universe. Otherwise, as I said, it would in fact self-destruct. A second uh, implication God sovereignly rules according to his most holy will, according to Psalm 145, verse 17. We read in Psalm 145, 17, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. His sovereign rule is not unholy, unrighteous, wicked, immoral in any respect. 
It is a pure government and controlling of everything. A holy government. As a pastor, I have heard questions like this many times. If God is righteous and controls all things, why did my baby die? Why must I suffer so much pain with this terminal case of cancer? Why are my children who were raised in a Christian home rebelling against everything that they were taught? Why did my spouse leave me for someone else? Why did I lose my job and find myself now in desperate financial straits? Why do little children around the world starve to death? Why the savage slaughter of so many people in wars? Why? 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 The questions go on and on and on. And you probably could supply many like questions yourself. Well, the skeptic responds to those questions as follows. Either God is sovereign or he's righteous, but he cannot be both. For it is not righteous to permit evil, death and suffering, if God could prevent such calamities. And if God would like to prevent them, but cannot do so, then he's not sovereign. He's not almighty. He's not all powerful. So the skeptic says you can't have it both ways, that God is both righteous and sovereign. Well, dear ones, this is mere human sophistry. That is a vain and subtle argument of foolish men. For the Bible teaches that God is, in fact, absolutely sovereign, and yet he is and remains absolutely holy and righteous as we read in Psalm 145, verse 17. He is not the author of sin and does not tempt any man. He does not force any man to sin, according to James 1, verses 13 through 15. Man sins because he wants to sin. Yes, God could have prevented the fall of man, which issued in God's curse upon all mankind, and all creation and bringing death, both of a physical uh, nature and a spiritual nature. He could prevent, he could have prevented every misery that we now see occurring in the world had he chosen to prevent the fall of man. That's certainly true. Even the final misery, the lake of fire, he could have prevented had he willed to do so. But he did, in fact, decree the fall of man, permitting man to follow his own lustful desire in order to glorify his justice in righteously punishing man for his sinful rebellion and in order to glorify his matchless and glorious grace in rescuing ungodly sinners from sin and death in the lake of fire, which they deserve. Dear ones, if all we see is our suffering or the suffering of others, we are not 
considering that which is even more important. And that which is more important is the glory of God. More important than our suffering, the suffering of others, is the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, Moses tried to wiggle out of taking God's message to Pharaoh, to the people of Israel, by saying that he was really not qualified, he was slow of speech, he was not articulate, etc., etc. But listen to what the Lord says in Exodus 4.11. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Now listen, listen to what he then asks. The Lord then asks, Or who maketh the dumb? That is, those who are mute. Those who are unable to speak. Who made the mute, the dumb? Or deaf? Who made those who cannot hear? Or the seeing? Or the blind? Have not I the Lord? The Lord is the one who takes responsibility, who says that he has, in fact, made those and decreed those who have various physical types of problems. In John 9.3, you recall that the Lord, the disciples looked upon a person who was born blind and said, who sinned? Did his parents sin that he was born blind or did he himself sin? Which of these was the result of his blindness? But the Lord says, neither, but that God might be glorified at this particular time. That God may receive glory. We may not understand with our finite human minds how God glorifies himself through these various events in our lives, in the lives of others. But we can be assured of this. If it would not bring God glory, he would not have permitted it. He would have not ordained it if it would not bring him glory in some way. We have the promise of the Lord through the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.28 that, that God works all things out for the good of them who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, not some things, but all things. You see, there is the comfort of the Christian is, is not in simply knowing that God is sovereign, intellectually knowing that. For if God were infinitely evil, instead of being infinitely holy and good, there could be no comfort in knowing God to be sovereign and all-powerful. Such a fact would only bring despair the fact that a despot was all-powerful. If Satan were all-powerful, that would not give us any encouragement. But the fact that God is sovereign, who is only good, who is all-good, who is only good to his people, and all-good, who, who, who has an, as an attribute goodness to a perfect degree, an infinite degree, 
and who is absolutely holy and without blemish, spot. That, dear ones, gives us confidence that such a God is absolutely sovereign and uh, governs and controls all things. Consider Joseph in Genesis 15, or I'm sorry, 50-20, Genesis 50-20, who after having been sold into slavery by his brothers, been lied about by his master's wife, put into prison for a number of years, forgotten about, it appeared, is exalted to be the second person in highest authority and power within Egypt, the greatest nation at that time in the world. And his brethren, after their father died, were a little frightened as to what is Joseph going to do now that dad is dead? Will he bring his vengeance upon us for what we have done unto him? And in effect, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve and to save all of these people from starvation in Canaan by bringing them to Egypt so that I could provide for them and feed them. Now, at any point along the line, we could be asking all of those kinds of questions. Why, God? Why? 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 And yet, God knows the end from the beginning. He has a plan. It is for His good or for his glory and for our good as his people. We can look at Christ and Christ being absolutely holy, without sin, and yet wicked hands put to death the sinless Son of God for which they were responsible. And yet, out of that death, that crucifixion upon the cross, comes salvation and life to all of us. In Romans 8.32, Paul argues there that if the Lord has not withheld even his only begotten Son from us, he'll not withhold anything else from us that is good for us. If God gave to us that which was most precious unto him, that we might be saved, that we might be brought into his everlasting kingdom, How will he withhold anything from us that is good for us? So that we can be assured that everything that comes into our life as his children is appointed and ordained for our good. No matter how bad it may seem, we have to, by God's grace, be able to see from heaven's perspective and where we can't see, where we just seem so caught up in that to cast ourselves upon the Lord in his wisdom and his knowledge and his holiness and his righteousness and his love rather than believing the lie of Satan that he doesn't care, that he's forsaken us, that he will not work this out for our good.
There was a time in my my own life, my youth and early adulthood, in which I, like many of you, foolishly resisted the precious and comforting doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty over all his creation and over my life and over the lives of my children. You see, I wanted to protect my sovereignty and my lordship over my own life and over the life of my loved ones. I blasphemously thought I could do a better job of governing my life than an absolutely holy, good, righteous, and sovereign God could do. God, in his richness of mercy, broke my proud and stubborn heart and brought me to see that I am nothing and can do nothing apart from him. And that I live not for my own glory, nor for my own honor, but for the glory and honor of him who most powerfully created me and mercifully saved me and rescued me from the guilt and power and condemnation of my own sin. The Lord took me to Romans chapter 9 and showed me the vanity and futility of my alleged sovereignty over my own life, over my supposed righteousness. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, seeking to show sinful men that it is not their glory or to their credit that any are saved, but to the sovereign will and grace of God alone that they are saved. Makes it very clear throughout this whole chapter that such is the case. One of the places out of many that just really hit me so hard it was in verse 20 and following nay but O man who art thou that repliest against God shall the thing formed say to him that formed it why hast thou made me thus hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? So we see, dear ones, not only are we comforted as Christians, by knowing with certainty that the God who loves us from everlasting to everlasting is absolutely sovereign, but we are also humbled before him to ask, Why me? Why did thou choose me? Why did thou send the Son of God to die for me? 
Why did thou give unto me thy Holy Spirit to raise me spiritually from the dead? To give me faith to lay hold of Christ. A love to obey Him. Why me? I'm no better than anyone else. I'm no better than any who are going to spend all eternity in hell. Why me? I deserve that as well. It's not that they don't deserve to be there. That is certainly true. The part that is, is so amazing is that's where I deserve to be. But I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. Why me? Everyone, if that truth does not break your heart today before the living God, that question, why me? I don't know what will break your heart before the living God. Won't you humble yourself this day under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you? The second question that we'd seek to answer from our text is how far does God's control extend? Back to Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Our text in Proverbs 21.1 states God's absolute power over the king and thus all men. It is like rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. This is an illustration from the realm of husbandry or farming. Since farmers in the days of Solomon did not have automated sprinkler systems, irrigation systems, electric pumps to bring water to their dry fields, they depended upon the rain which they received and other water sources like rivers and streams or lakes or pools and diverting the water into their fields to water them. And they would uh, dig little canals, little ditches along their crops and they would block with a rock or wood or even with their foot. They would stick that there temporarily to divert the water to places wherever they wanted it to go. And so this would be the, the source of this particular statement that Solomon uses here. And even in Deuteronomy 11.10, uh, it speaks there of putting the foot, uh, uses that, that exact expression in Deuteron- Deuteronomy 11.10. And so we see that that was something that was used uh, by farmers. Solomon says that just as the farmer so easily moves the water flowing through these small trenches in the direction where he desires it to go, so the Lord likewise exercises his absolute sovereignty in moving the very hearts of kings to do whatever he wills to be done for his own glory. In Proverbs 20, verse 24, we read, Man's doings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? If we do not begin there, that are the things that happen to us, 
God is the one who ordains them all. How can we learn from them? How can we gain wisdom if we do not even acknowledge God's role and part in directing us and bringing circumstances into our life? We'll continue to make the same mistakes. We'll not give God the glory and the credit. We'll not have the grace and the wisdom to be able to avoid those types of things which God would have us to learn and teach us from those things he has brought into our lives. The key phrase here is, whithersoever he will. That is, wherever it pleases him. There are no boundaries, dear ones, placed upon the sovereignty of God if he can so powerfully control the lives of men that he may turn them in whatever direction he desires for his own own holy purposes. As the scripture so clearly teaches, even the wicked unwittingly accomplish in their sin the very purposes of God. Whether, as we've already mentioned, in the slavery and imprisonment of Joseph by his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, or in the captivity of Israel in Isaiah 10, verse 7. There God speaks of the Assyrians who were the rod of his wrath and anger against Israel. God used them. And though Isaiah says, or God says, they do not mean to do so. It's not their intention, Assyria's intention to be used as God's wrath against Israel, as God's Uh, rod against Israel to discipline Israel. They simply are bringing against Israel out of their own sin, their lust for power, to extend their rule, to be cruel. But God intends it for a particular purpose. Or even in the death of Christ, as we have seen, how even that particular wicked crime, that sin, sin of all sins, to crucify and put to death the sinless Son of God, God intended for good. The Lord causes even the wrath of man to praise him, according to Psalm 76, verse 10. The Lord turned the heart of pagan kings like Cyrus and Artaxerxes to return captive Israel to her homeland and even to supply materials with which to build or to rebuild the temple. In Ezra 1.1 and Nehemiah 2.8, heathen kings... God placed it in their heart to do this for his people. This inspired proverb in Proverbs 21.1 teaches rulers that they do not have absolute rule and authority over a nation. And they many times forget that. They act as though what they say is simply going to happen because they said it, that their rules, their decisions are what apply and they answer to no one. They act that way so often. The only people they think they are going to be accountable to are the people who elected them. And for that reason, they so often will simply court the people and do what the people want them to do so they can continue in power. But how many really believe that they are going to give an account before God, the living God? No doubt, very few. Very, very few. 
They deceive and fool themselves if they think they are able to escape to a sovereign God for the Lord yet sovereignly turns their sinful hearts to fulfill his holy purposes and they will stand before God on that final day of judgment to give an account as we all will. We in various ways who have places of authority will give an account before God whether in the church or in home or in the nation. We will give an account individually of how we, each one, have conducted our lives. There is coming a day of judgment that we will give an account. How can we, the children of this absolutely sovereign, holy, and gracious God, possibly lose if the Almighty God so tenderly loves us and provides for us all that we truly need. If such a God be for us, who can be against us? That's the question Paul asks in Romans 8.31. We may have besetting sins. We may suffer from various afflictions. We may lose loved ones. We may lose our jobs, our health, our wealth, or our liberty, but we are certain, we are absolutely certain that our loving Father takes nothing away that He does not replace with something even better, even better in His grace and mercy, in building character within us and drawing us nearer unto Himself to trust more firmly and confidently in Him and to love Him all the more and to prepare us for heaven to come, showing us that this world is vanishing and falling away. That our sight must be upon heaven to come. That we are aliens and sojourners and pilgrims. That our citizenship is indeed in heaven. Dear ones, when we serve a sovereign God who loves us and ordains all things for our good, there isn't anything insignificant in our lives. We don't take anything. When we realize that truly, we don't take anything for granted. There's nothing insignificant. Because God ordains it. Everything has meaning and purpose. When we see God and understand God to be sovereign... We therefore have hope because there's a purpose and a reason for everything. We have hope. We're not cast into despair and hopelessness. For God is at work causing even the wrath of man to praise him and to work all things for the good of his people. A sovereign God should cause it's true, should cause the ungodly to literally shake in their boots. For such an absolutely sovereign God is against the wicked. The wicked cannot prevail against him. He will crush them as an enemy of his holiness and his righteousness. There is nowhere to hide from such a sovereign God. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is true. But you, 
who are the children of the living God, who trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation and seek to show him your love for his kindness and mercy through your obedience to his good commands. I encourage you, let the power and sovereignty of God encourage your hearts, not cause you to shake with a cowardly, slavish fear, but rather draw near to God as your Father who is sovereign. Embrace Him, for He does what is good for you. Do not become weary in well-doing and in persevering in doing that which is righteous. For your sovereign God will cause you to reap in due season if you faint not. What are your true needs in this life, whether materially or spiritually? Your sovereign God, who is able and willing to supply all your needs, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, will meet those needs. For according to Luke one thirty seven, whatever your needs, remember, for with God nothing, nothing shall be impossible. Do not set boundaries around God that he himself has not set. With him, nothing shall be impossible. Even in conceiving a child in the womb without a human father, in the virgin birth, nothing shall be impossible to God. Dear ones, The arm of flesh will fail you. If you lean upon the arm of flesh, it will fail you. But the sovereign God of the Bible will never fail his beloved child who looks in faith to him for righteousness, forgiveness, and every need that he or she has in both body and soul. He will never fail you. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Lord and our God, we are indeed brought to the dust before Thee as we consider Thy greatness and our lowliness. Who are we? Mere creatures, sons of men and fallen in the sin of Adam, carrying out various wicked designs, our own pleasure, our own will, ignoring and neglecting Thee, forgetting Thee. Who are we that Thou should show unto us such mercy and grace? Thou should give us so much in this world, restrain us from so much evil and wickedness and sin, and use even our sin and everything that comes into our life for our good to prepare us for that glorious home in heaven. Who are we, O God, that Thou would look upon us and have compassion upon us? Set Thy thy love upon 
those who are so undeserving. Lord, we are humbled before thee now. We pray, our Father, that thou would take thy truth that comes from thy word that is made alive in our hearts by thy spirit, that thou would change, transform us, Conform us, O Lord, into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us, O Lord, that we continue not to fall into unbelief, doubting thy promises, doubting thy power and sovereignty, forgetting thee. We pray, our Father, that thou would would, uh, Cause the, the truth of this to shake any of us, should any of us be remaining in our sin, not having trusted in Christ, refusing the invitation to come to Christ, playing games with thee. May we, O oh God, indeed shake in our boots. If we are merely going through the motions but are not seeking to trust thee, we are not laying hold O God, of thee and thy righteousness, but trusting in our own righteousness. Lord, we pray that this truth would indeed bring a sobriety unto us. Make us, O God, to see that thou art a God to be taken seriously, a God to be feared above all gods, to reverence thee, and to cast ourselves upon thee. We ask, Lord, all of these things, trusting in thee, our most high and sovereign God. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.